For centuries, people have been telling other people what to eat. The paleo diet fad might be new, but the idea that some people know what food is best or healthiest or cleanest and that other people need to be educated about that is definitely not new. It might be one of the oldest ideas we've explored on this show, actually. And it has surprisingly little to do with knowledge about food itself, and a whole lot more to do with ideas about whose culture is good, or about living right, or defending a social order. But one group of cultural organizers in California's Central Valley, at the Pan Valley Institute, has radically shifted this conversation. And by doing that, they point the way towards a new model for food movement work that builds political and community strength from difference and diversity. Since the beginning, our ultimate goal has been to create opportunities for immigrants to take part in the shaping the political, social, and cultural life of the Central Valley. Our work has been guided by the principles of popular education, by the fundamental belief that immigrants have the capacity to organize, to find solutions to the problems they face, and they not only bring their, their hands to work, but also their culture, their creativity, various community organizing strategies, and their sensibilities to bear on problems and opportunities shared by all in the Valley. That's Mirna Martinez, and she's describing what we're calling Politica del Mole, or the politics of mole. Okay, here we go. It's a mighty long road that my poor hands have hoed. My poor feet have traveled a long, dusty road. Out of your dust bowl and westward we rolled. Your desert was hot and your mountains were cold. I worked on your orchards of peaches and prunes. Slept on the ground by the light of your moon. I'm Ildi Carlisle Cummins. And I'm Lee Schmidt. And this is the Calag Roots Podcast. Calag Roots is unearthing stories about important moments in the history of California food and farming to shed some light on current issues in agriculture. This is the final podcast in our Borderlands story series. For the past two years, we've focused on stories that highlight the waves of immigrants who built the California agricultural industry. You can jump into Borderlands at this episode or go back and listen to the whole series, which starts at podcast number four, Founding Farmers. Check it out at www.agroots.org. Next year, we're excited to say we're going to be diving into a new series called We Are Not Strangers Here, which explores histories of rural African-American communities in California. For today's story, I'm really glad to introduce you to a new voice here, Lee Schmidt. Lee and I co-produced this podcast, and we'll be co-narrating the episode together. Lee is a graduate student at UC Davis, and like me, she's also a food movement activist with a lot of questions about how our food system got to be the way it is. And maybe this is obvious, but I think I've got to say it right at the top of the show since Calig Roots has tended to focus on farming history. Food and farming systems are intimately linked. The choices that people make about their diets and the people who are trying to influence those diets have big impacts on agriculture. Okay, so here's Lee to continue our story. 
We found that digging just a little bit into the history of ideas about diet quickly turned up a lot of ideas about race and about class and about power. People in power have always blamed people's diet for poor people's lack of power. And so it sort of becomes this, you know, kind of trope, right, that instead of trying to fix the situation, they're trying to fix the people. That's Mario Cifuentes, history professor at UC Merced. You'll hear more from him later in this story. Certain groups of people have always been invested in trying to change the way other people eat, and they have done that as a part of what scholars tend to call dietary reform movements. Dietary reformers' values and ideas have shifted over the years, but they always have one major thing in common. They believe that they understand the best way to eat, and that eating right means living right. For a lot of reformers, the stakes are really high, so they often dedicate their lives to convincing other people to eat like they do. Charlotte Biltikoff, a professor at UC Davis, literally wrote the book on this subject. It's called Eating Right in America, The Cultural Politics of Food and Health. What comes to mind first and foremost for most people is, you know, an idea that people who are trying to change other people's diets are simply sort of taking objective ideas that come out of the scientific process and applying them to helping make other people's lives better. And I, I learned through a variety of experiences to suspect that there was a lot more going on than that. And so I spent about 20 years trying to understand um, what was really going on with trying to teach other people how to eat right and um, discovering that in fact it's really a social process and that dietary reform is as much about values and social ideals as it is about any particular ideas about good food. To understand this history in California and the U.S., you have to go way back. Our story really begins in the late 19th century over a hundred years ago, with a particular group of reformers. Here's Charlotte again. My, my research did start in the late 19th century, but at that time, the, the center of nutrition research and dietary reform was in the Northeast. The turn of the century is, is a unique time in that women who took up dietary reform at that time were a, looking for ways to engage in science and industry that were accessible to them. And that turned out to be around domesticity. And they were also participating in the larger cultural and political movements of progressivism. And, and, and many reformers put different things at the center of their agendas, but there was a large group of them who put food at the center. One of the leaders of the dietary reform movement, according to Charlotte, was Ellen Richards. Richards was a scientist and the first woman to get a PhD from MIT. As a woman, Ellen Richards found that the only way she could open her own lab was to focus on domestic science, or science having to do with the home. And Ellen Richards came in with a completely different agenda, sort of captured some of that energy and turned it towards a bigger vision about the domestic space as this important civic place where societies, the fabric of society could be strengthened through the right kind of relationship to food and domesticity in general. A few decades later, in California, another group of reformers emerged. There's a group in California called the Friends of the Mexicans, right, that um, that really sort of takes that to heart in the 1900s, the late, mid-1920s, really, um, when they start to visiting, visiting people's homes and trying to teach them to cook other food. Talking to people like Mario Cifuentes, assistant professor of history at UC Merced, we learned that changing people's dietary habits was only on the surface about the food they were eating. He sees this diet reform work as part of the ongoing process of colonization of the Americas 
and the assimilation of immigrants into the U.S. This is like really emerges around the time of immigration debates. I always think of dietary reform as as being sort of a sideshow to the actual to the actual problems. So if dietary reform is the sideshow, as Mario says, then what were the real underlying reasons for reformers to be so invested in this kind of work? The first reason, race. Back to Mario. And so the uh, Johnson Reed Act is passed in 1924, I believe, and you know the, the the if you're not familiar with the Johnson Reed Act, the Johnson Reed Act starts to place prohibitions on uh, on various countries. Uh, you know, it puts quotas on on all the countries in Africa, all the countries in Asia, and Mexico escapes the the, the quotas um, largely due to the to the power of agribusiness lobby. But that doesn't really put a lot of very many people at ease, right? In terms of this idea of, of immigration restriction began with sort of the pollution of a pure racial stock in the United States um, with this sort of various different immigrant groups that would, you know, uh, damage the sort of superiority of Anglo-Saxon, uh, you know, genetic lines. Uh, and so when the Mexicans escaped that, that prohibition, uh, there's these other forces that go into work, right, to sort of try to focus on how do we limit essentially the effects that these immigrants can have on American culture, and, and you know they they start to essentially go to people's homes. This is this sort of critique of of Mexicans' diets actually begins in Mexico, and uh, and it's a way of critiquing indigenous people's diets during the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, there was a movement in Mexico that was pushed by a group of people called the Cientificos, or the Scientific Ones, right? And essentially, uh, what the Porfirio Diaz um, dictatorship tried to do was to emulate Europe in all of its ways and its culture. Um, so there were a number of different laws that like out, outlawed indigenous practices. Practices um, like literally like wearing cotton pants, right? Like there was uh, a move towards wearing jeans instead of pants. There was a move away from uh, you know cockfighting to bullfighting, from uh, other sports to like baseball. There were all these ways in which there was an emulation of both Europe and their North American neighbors, and food was no exception to that. It became a key goal of the Mexican government to shift people's diets as a way of making progress and of marking one race as superior to others. Instead of sort of addressing the kind of structural inequality that existed within Mexican society, um, there was the blaming of the indigenous people uh, and their backwardness, and that blame was laid squarely at the feet of their diet. And so there was this idea that corn, beans, right, and, um, and squash were responsible for the sort of, um, uh, you know, the hindrance of indigenous development in general. Traditionally, indigenous Mexicans made tortillas from corn. The Cientificos and the diet reformers who followed them wanted people to eat flour tortillas instead. There was this thing that became known as the tortilla discourse. And so basically there were arguments uh, between sort of making flour, a European product, a European staple, right, a part of uh, indigenous diets. I mean, this is why white supremacy is so fascinating, right? Because on the one hand... It's supposed to be this like um, this superior kind of like undefeatable, right, uh, impenetrable thing, and yet every little thing 
is seen as a threat to white supremacy, right? Like tortillas are a threat to white supremacy. And it's like, well, if it's so fragile, then, you know, like if it's so, then maybe it's not superior, right? Maybe that's not true. Similar dynamics were at play in the U.S. with groups like the one Mario mentioned called Friends of the Mexicans. To these reformers and to later reformers in the U.S., diet not only stood in for race, but also for class. Here's Charlotte Biltikoff again. I think it's important to recognize that, that modern dietary reform, that is, these social reform movements that are also enlisting um, the sort of quantitative empiricism of the modern science of nutrition, um, emerges at the very same moment as the American middle class, and that they share a history. Ultimately, through the work of dietary reformers like the domestic scientists, um, striving to eat right and being good eaters became associated with the qualities and characteristics of class, such as responsibility and autonomy and fitness to lead. Later on, Charlotte says, California became ground zero for modern dietary reform movements. Later on in my, the history that I trace, the focus does shift more to California um, because there's the emergence of these alternative food movements that are very much influenced by the counterculture and by certain aspects of California food culture and agriculture and by particular iconic figures like Alice Waters as one particularly iconic figure. Um, and, and not only is she located in California, but she also locates her ethos and ideals in something special about California. The 19th century dietary reformers were all about using science to uphold beliefs about right eating. And Alice Waters and her followers try to rebel against that. They're more into cultivating a passion for flavors and connections between eaters and farmers, a very romantic idea. Um, and so after having done a lot of research into both of these dietary reformers, the turn of the century domestic science movement and um, Alice Waters' sort of ethos of eating in the, what she called the delicious revolution in the turn of the 21st century, um, I really came to see these striking parallels and similarities in terms of using dietary reform as a way to express social values. Dietary reform as a language that, as a language and set of ideas that really also bolsters class boundaries and class identity. Her, her ethos was really about bringing sensuality and tradition and history and culture back into the kitchen and banishing science and industry. Um, so really completely opposite. And yet at the core, both sets of reformers are really driven by these ideas about teaching people to eat right for social purposes and this connection between dietary ideals and social ideals, good eaters and good citizens. Mm -hmm. And it's much more similar than it is different despite the fact that the ideas about good food are opposite. So in both this century and the last one, ideas about diets themselves, what's good, what's bad, have stood in for race and class in reformist agendas. Diet reformers also, maybe unsurprisingly, drew on anti-immigrant rhetoric. There's a reason this piece is part of our Borderlands series, which has focused on immigrant innovations in the San Joaquin Valley. Melanie Dupuy, professor at Pace University, has written about this subject in her book, Dangerous Digestion. Well, if, you know, if, pure, if, if we are what we eat and if purification, you know, deciding what is supposed to be inside and outside is sort of the, you know, the, the way in which people have defined society up until now, what, what really does that kind of 
you know, purity versus danger do is that the pure people are the superior people, right? And the superior people are the deserving people. And the deserving people are the ones who are, you know, are the ones who get the resources and other folks, you know, don't. We don't use the term dietary reform much anymore, but you can see examples of this kind of work happening still. In fact, we were interested in investigating the story because we saw this kind of stuff at the heart of the food movement. School garden menus that encourage kids to put kale in their quesadillas, or the promotion of eat local, without a critical look of how eating locally can reinforce cultural and economic structures that benefit certain types of farming and food businesses, the kinds that are culturally familiar to some over others. This darker set of social problems lurks beneath the surface of seemingly feel-good food work, which helps explain why doing food system work is so complex. Lee laid it out pretty clearly there. Telling people what they should and shouldn't eat can be deeply problematic. It has an ugly, inescapable history. And maybe it can never be separated from race and class projects that pretend to be about food, but are actually about everything except food. But we also know that our food system is deeply flawed, and that it makes people, especially poor people, really sick. So what then would these food scholars that we talked to have folks in the food movement do? We asked them all that question. If I could wave a magic wand, it wouldn't be to do away with dietary reform for the sake of doing away with dietary reform, but to get it out of the way so that we can address the bigger issues. Like if I really had magic, I wouldn't use it to change people's diets. I would use it to address these larger social and, um, you know, political and issues around race and class and poverty and all of that. People know how to eat. People have been eating for hundreds of thousands of years, right? There's no like... Um, you know, there's no, I don't think there's any piece of advice that you can give somebody that will have any sort of long lasting impacts, right? I mean, as long as, I mean, you can tell everybody whatever they want, but as long as a bag of Cheetos is cheaper than a pound of broccoli, then that's, that's just what's going to happen. Focus on structures, they say, on structural racism, on oppression and poverty, and on the power systems that maintain those things. Don't waste time and energy trying to think up individual solutions for particular people. Uh, there's always this tension, I think, between helping people immediately and helping people in the long run, and I understand that tension, especially as somebody who was an organizer for so many years. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, it's sort of like somebody's playing chess and somebody's playing checkers. Everybody, I think, needs to understand the continuum and the importance of other people's work and not diss it and say, you know, that isn't a useful way of thinking. I'm not going to support that. It, it may not be your area of expertise or where you want to personally spend your professional time, but that doesn't mean that somebody shouldn't be doing it. because. We need all of those different things to be happening simultaneously in order to move forward. And I don't think any of them is more or less important than the other ones. We ought to be embracing that diversity of expertise, period.
<laughs> I, I think you're the first interviewer that's like put a little period, like a little mic drop at the end of the Yeah, what's a mic drop? That's Gail Feenstra, and she's upset, as you can hear. Many people engaged in food movement work might be, by the implications of what we just heard from Mario, from Charlotte, and Melanie. If we all stop thinking about individual people and we focus on systems, doesn't that mean abandoning a lot of people with real, daily, and sometimes even life-threatening struggles with food or food access? Gail has dedicated her career to creating access to healthy food for people and is a recognized authority on farm-to-school programs, which often include elements of nutrition education. I don't think it's either or at all. Absolutely, we need policy change. We absolutely do. And I think having help on an individual level is really good. And part of it is because if you're not connected on the ground to real people, what you say, you know, to policymakers is, is, is it's like it's top down in a way. My point of departure was as, as a nutritionist, that on the ground person giving nutrition advice. I'm, I'm thinking of a, of a particular experience I had in Davis where a woman had a lot of kids and I really wanted her to do a garden and all this kind of thing and eat healthy food and you know she, she wanted to too but she all of her time was spent get going to get her food stamps and on the bus and so she got what she could but it wasn't necessarily healthy it was fast food and it was you know not necessarily the best and so it's like what can we do to to help make some choices that might be a little healthier and a little cheaper and whatever uh, but mainly it's like what's wrong with this system too that makes it so difficult for her to function in this way I asked her if she meant the food system broader some government food programs but I'm thinking of the fact that um, she doesn't have a car, she doesn't, she doesn't have transportation, you know, you have to pick up your food stamps or whatever, you're, you know, at a certain location at a certain time, and she has to pick up a kid also. And so the kid has to go with her from school to here to here. It's, I mean, I can't imagine doing this by myself and running around doing all this. It's just, it's kind of insane. Suddenly, Gail and our three food scholars didn't seem so far apart. It seemed like everyone was talking about a focus on systemic change. She went on to defend the work of nutritionists in this context. It's not really about um, giving them a, a, like a, a prescription. H- here are things you do, and here's things you don't. I mean, that's not how people learn. And if people think that's what dietitians and nutritionists do, they're kind of wrong about that. I mean, good ones anyway. Gail explained what she sees as essential to being the good kind of dietitian. Spend more time in listening to people than in talking to people. Um, that educated me more than anything about what was important for long-term health and for ways that people could make important contributions as uh, people in their community. I really was very curious myself about their cultural heritage and 
Um, the words they used to describe food, which were different than the ones I learned, how they ate together as family and what the celebrations were and what was important to them when they ate together or didn't. To me, that understanding that from a real um, gut place was more important than, you know, the amounts of, you know, red rice and beans or whatever it was, uh, because I could see what was important to them. So, here we have critical food scholars, historians, and a dietitian turned food systems researcher seemingly in basic agreement. They say structures need to shift, that we need to respect people's own knowledge and their own food traditions. We need a new way forward that honors work happening on all levels and a new model of doing food movement work. I, I don't really care even about what people eat. I don't really care about nutrition. I don't care about food. What I care about is making effective social change. Melanie Dupuis has a new model for food movement work. She calls it fermentive politics. As it turns out, food becomes a, a, a metaphor for politics that I think we need to sort of rethink. And so the politics of coming up with a vision of a good society and then being missionaries and convincing everybody else of our vision hasn't worked out so well and probably shouldn't have in the first place because it really denies other people's ideas of, of what a good life is. And so toward the end of Dangerous Digestion, what I, you know, what I, I go towards is an idea of what I call fermentive politics, right? Which is that, uh, you know, moving toward a better society, moving toward good life, moving towards social change is a process of fermentation rather than a process of purification. For her, this new way of thinking about political organizing challenges a really old understanding of who we are at the most basic personal level. Problem, a lot of our problems with being unable to come up with effective ways to create social change together. It has to, has to do with seeing the body as something that's a, bound, a bounded thing that um, is an inside and an outside, and that um, the way to uh, defend the body is to keep, keep it protected and sanitized and pure um, away from a dangerous and um, diverse environment. And instead, I think that Actually, science is actually providing us at the moment with a different metaphor of the body. It's probably safe to say that most people listening to this podcast believe that our bodies are defined things, that you can tell where they stop and start, that they're separate from the world around us. But according to Melanie, and increasingly a whole bunch of scientists, that old idea is being totally rethought, and we're realizing that we were wrong about our own bodies in some pretty fundamental ways. The body in itself is a, is a collaboration between, um, you know, some of our cells are human, but a lot of our cells are old viruses, and a lot of our, um, you know, the, what makes our body work is a, is a collaboration with bacteria inside our bodies. So how do we make a society work well? Well, not in the old metaphor of the body, as this, you know, pure, strongly bounded between the pure and the dangerous impure, but as a sort of collaboration between 
different beings that don't necessarily all have the same goal. I mean, the bacteria in my gut do not have the same goal that I have. Um, fortunately, we work together fairly well most of the time. Melanie explained that she thinks it would be helpful to understand politics in the same way. So it's not a matter of pure, coming up with a pure life and then trying to purify everyone else, but coming, you know, bringing people together who have all these different ideas about good lives and figuring out how we're going to move through the future together to a, a better life for all of us that doesn't include me telling other people what to eat or how to live. We thought that was really interesting, but it can also be tough to imagine how this might play out in people's communities and in their lives. What would a movement actually look like that embraced these ideas? The more we thought about it, the more we realized that the Pan Valley Institute in California's Central Valley is a real-world example of this in action. So, months after folks from the Pan Valley Institute told their stories live on stage at our Borderlands of the San Joaquin Valley event, Lee and I went to the 20th anniversary celebration for the Tamajavi Project at the Pan Valley Institute, where we witnessed fermentive politics in action. Um, so here in this corner, we have um, the region Mixteca from Oaxaca, Mexico, uh, Doña Rosa and Doña Silvia. Rosa nos va a hablar sobre el platillo que trajo. Y a ver, Rosa, le voy a preguntar, ¿qué, qué, qué, qué recuerdos o qué memorias le trae a usted el cocinar su comida tradicional? So what I asked Rosa is, what memories or what um, remembrances do you have when you cook your traditional food? Why do you still cook your traditional food? Because that's very important, right? We ran into Erica Cole Arenas, one of the original Tamajavi organizers, at the 20th anniversary party. The idea of Tamajavi and the word came from this idea of the marketplace, which is in immigrants' home countries, the gathering space where people come together um, around food. Well, I think that at the heart of it, Tamajavi is about decolonization. And when we founded Tamajavi back in 2002, it was, you know, on the heels of 9-11. And a lot of immigrant communities were um, hiding out and persecuted and fearful to share their cultures in public even more so than has always been the case. Uh, food is also another colonized space, right? Where even the healthy food movement here in this country is an outside in, there's a pyramid and this is what should go in the pyramid and this is what you should eat and this is where you should shop. Where many immigrant communities in the Central Valley have fought very hard, as you heard in the Culture Kitchen today, to bring and plant and grow and cook the foods of their home countries, which are actually much healthier than even I would suggest what the food movement is trying to teach people to do as they go to the supermarket, right? So, and so Tamajavi was initially a statement uh, about being out and public and together, about sharing stories and voices and traditions and ways of living and eating and working and speaking and dancing. Mirna Martinez, current director of the Pan Valley Institute and the Tamajavi Project, put it this way. 
Uh, like when we start doing this cultural work, we didn't call it cultural organizing because we didn't start from the theory to the practice, you know? So it's like, okay, we, are the, we realize the centrality of culture for the immigrants and refugees. And that's what we start focusing so much on that as a strategy for building relationships, for building a more cohesive community. And then in the last, I will say four years, we start talking about colonization. Because one of the things that we try to do is for these groups to find not only that we share a lot of things in common, like food or music or something, but struggles too. And we say, what is the thing that really we all share? And we realize that is the, that they have a long history of colonization. So we start talking about um, what we have been doing is not only about the colonization of the diet, but the colonization in general, you know, in the sense that providing these spaces for people that has always been told that they are worthless, that they, you know, that they don't have education, that they don't have culture, that they don't have art, the art, especially art, and people come to believe that. It is a political act, definitely. That's how we see it. Many people, um, it's been interesting because this kind of work is kind of new, I would say, especially the immigrant movement or immigrant organizing focusing on the culture is new in a way, and many people even has criticized us to say that we just play safe, you know? But we think that it is a political act. It's been 20 years since Tamajavi started this work. And it seems really clear that the next 20 years of food movement work in California could grow from these roots in the Central Valley. We think the California food movement should pay really close attention to this work because it seems like this is where the solutions we're looking for are going to come from. This is a movement led by the people most affected by the current agricultural system, and they are creating the cutting edge of political theory through their organizing. For Melanie Dupuy and an East Coast crowd, a theory based on fermentation, on pots of sauerkraut, might work. But in California, a better metaphor might be mole. This is Politica del Mole, or the politics of mole. And now, to take us out, here's Diana Sevilla from the Pan Valley Institute. This next uh, song is also by Lila Downs. It's called La Cumbia del Mole. Okay, here we go. Cuentan que en Oaxaca se toma mezcal con café. Cuentan que en Oaxaca se toma mezcal con café. Dicen que la hierba le cura la mala fe. Dicen que la hierba le cura la mala fe. A mí me gusta el mole, que soledad me va a moler. A mí me gusta el mole, que soledad me va a moler. Venga de Mi querida soledad, me va a guisar un molito por el cielo de Monte Albán. De noche sueño contigo, mi querida soledad. Ea. Me va a guisar un molito por el cielo de Monte Albán. De noche sueño contigo. Eso. Se muele ese cacahuate. Se muele también el pan. Se muele la almendra seca. Se muele el chile también la sal. 
Se muele ese chocolate, se muele las canelas, se muele pimienta y clavo, se muele la molendera, se muele la molendera, se muele la molendera, se muele la molendera. Eso, ¿listos? Mi querida soledad, me va a guisar un molito por el cielo de Montalbán. De noche sueño contigo, mi querida soledad. Me va a guisar un molito por el cielo de Montalbán. De noche sueño contigo. This story was produced by the California Institute for Rural Studies. Me, Ildi Carlisle Cummins, director of the Calag Roots Project, and Lee Schmidt. Special thanks to everyone whose voices you heard here today. Mirna Martinez, Erica Cole Arenas, Melanie Dupuy, Mario Cifuentes, Gail Finstra, Charlotte Biltikoff, and Brenda Ordaz. The music for our podcast was sung by Diana Sevilla from the Pan Valley Institute. Thanks also to our funders. We couldn't have made this without you. The 11th Hour Project and the Food and Farming Communications Fund.